Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Randy is winning. He's out. Yes, Randy is out. Look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Passball Show MTR Radio Network. Of course, hour two of the radio program. Hope you guys are enjoying. Hope you guys enjoyed the first hour. Uh, a couple things we're going to get into. We're going to start out. I'm going to maybe uh, jump into a little bit of Phillies right now. And obviously, if you know that Roy Halladay is uh, – on the disabled list, whether it's a precautionary thing, whether it turns out to be um, significant damage to his shoulder, he's going to be out for a little while, at least a couple weeks, maybe a month. And uh, I'm not going to get into that too much because that could be talked a lot about on the, on the daily shows. But one thing that I do want to suggest is the Phillies have an opportunity right now to bring up who is their best pitching prospect. And, uh, you know, you look at really through the Philadelphia Phillies farm system, there's a guy, you know, there's a guy named Adam Morgan who's pitching in AAA. Ethan Martin's a guy that they got in a trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers last year for Shane Victorino. And the one guy that stands out as far as being their number one elite pitching prospect, they're, they're uh, Zach Wheeler per se is Jesse Biddle. And Jesse Biddle is doing a very good job in AAA. He's pitching to a below three ERA. He's striking out a lot more hitters per innings pitched. He, he's getting the job done. He looks phenomenal. Uh, listen, what, what gives in bringing a guy like this up? I mean, a lot of people are against it because of reasons that we said before. Oh, he didn't get enough innings. Is he ready? Just put him out there for a start or two. And the guy does have ace-type stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it, some of the Philly guys don't necessarily agree that he may be that great, but he's going to be good. And here's a guy who has an opportunity right now to not only come in and make an impact and replace Roy Halladay for three, four starts. He could go out there and be a starter for the rest of this season, and then you come in the next season and you got a, a bona fide spot in a rotation set by somebody that you projected to be in your rotation within the next couple of years. And in my opinion, I think Jesse Biddle's in a situation that he's proven himself. And, and you know, you get into similarities between that and what's going on with the New York Mets and Zach Wheeler. I think Wheeler should be up here too. I mean, the bottom line is people are so 
uh, obsessed with his babying of pitchers, particularly young pitchers coming through the system. If, if a guy's ready, a guy's ready. He's going to be throwing the same 60 feet, 6 inches, whether he's pitching in double A or triple A or the majors. I mean, if you, if you think he's ready, you bring him up. You don't come up with some BS excuse that you don't think the guy's ready just to, uh, to save a year of arbitration eligibility. And I've talked about it with the Mets. I've talked about where they stand with their starting pitchers. Yes, Jeremy Hefner has gone out there and pitched well. He's pitched better over his last couple starts. But in the end, he's a guy that you don't want in a rotation if you don't have to put him there. He's a good sixth starter. Dylan G is a good fifth starter. I mean, to run these guys out there just, you know, just for the sake of getting Zach Wheeler more experience in the minor leagues, is, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I didn't jump too far off the subject because I am talking Phillies here. Jesse Biddle, uh, to me, has the stuff to pitch in the major leagues right now. And I've said the same thing about Zach Wheeler. What do the Phillies want to do? Maybe the only concern that I can understand with the Philadelphia Phillies right now in regards to Jesse Biddle is maybe they think Halliday is going to come right back and jump back and get himself back in a rotation and be there and be fine. And if that happens, then you have Jesse Biddle. You started his clock for three, four starts, and now he's back in the minor leagues. I think you give him a chance to earn a spot if he goes out there and pitches well and proves that he could be an anchor in a rotation. And maybe there's an innings limit. Maybe there's something that towards the end of the season, he's going to be cut back regardless of where he is. And if that's true, you deal with it when you deal with it. But here's a spot for this guy to come in here for three or four starts. If he's overmatched, you send him back to the minors. But odds are he won't be overmatched. He's going to be able to strike out hitters. He's going to, he's going to progress himself to a point where he's going to develop as a starting pitcher at the major league level. And when Roy Halladay gets back, even if it's in two weeks, you send Jonathan Pettibone down to the minors and you got your starting pitcher. You got Jesse Biddle who's going to be part of your rotation for the next several years. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. And I've said to you guys all along, you know, if you listen to the first hour, uh, interaction with the past ball show, now that it's not being live, is going to be held on my mobile device, on my Twitter account. So tweet at me, at John underscore P-L-E. That's J-O-H-N underscore P-I-E-L-L-I. And I promise I will respond to every tweet that is sent at me during my show. But moving forward, listen. We talked Yankees first hour. We talked a little bit of Phillies just now. We're going to get into the New York Mets right here. And one thing that interests me the other day, and, you know, this is going to get in a little comment uh, or a little uh, commentary about clutchness. David Wright hits a home run against Craig Kimbrell in the ninth inning to tie the game. With two strikes, for that matter. A game that you figure, as a Mets fan, is probably over. Kimbrell against anybody is really no contest. It's like game over. Remember the whole Eric Gagne game over? Uh, you know, enter Sandman. That's, that's what you're looking at with a guy like Craig Kimbrell on the mound. He's that good. And David Wright squares an up-and-away fastball, drives it deep to right center field, and way out of here to tie the game. And all you've heard over the last several years, and I'm, I'm actually getting tired of hearing it because it's just annoying the heck out of me. The problem I have is that fans, Met fans are bitter. Met fans are upset. Met fans hate the fact that their team hasn't been good for a long time and may not be good for even even a while longer. 
But why you got to take it out on every player that's playing on your team? You're going to go out there and say that David Wright isn't clutch. In my opinion, David Wright has come up with enough clutch hits. And yes, everybody strikes out with the bases loaded sometimes. Everybody has that big final out of the game where they take a called strike three. It happens. But I'm going to make a case. I'm going to bring you some moments, kind of get your old memory kind of jogged over some of the nights that David Wright was clutch for the New York Mets. And we're going to go most recently, of course, with the home run off of Kimbrell. Ties the game. The Mets have no business winning that game. They end up winning it in 10 innings. Last year, R.A. Dickey's going out there for his 20th win. The Mets obviously are embracing it. They're around him. They're going to do everything they can to support him. R.A. Dickey doesn't have his best stuff, but the Mets are still up 3-2 in a game. David Wright hits a three-run home run, gives the Mets that win. Now, listen, it's not putting the Mets in the postseason, but a game that the team got behind itself, got behind R.A. Dickey and said, we're going to win it. David Wright was the guy that went out there and did the job. 2010. Mets are out of the race. Late part of 2010. Jerry Manuel, uh, you know, his managerial career is coming down to an end. But he gets, he gets brushed back in a game against the Washington Nationals. Tyler Clippard throws him a little chin music. And Wright steps up and drives a three-run home run that breaks a tie and gives the Mets a win. Obviously, not a playoff moment. We're not talking about the World Series, but listen, have the Mets ever been in a World Series when David Wright's been there? Uh, that's what I thought. Then he go back a little further. The first game... At City Field, brand new stadium, opening it up, playing the San Diego Padres. I remember being there, watching uh, Jody Garrett hits the first pitch that Mike Pelfrey throws in the stadium. Out of here. Home run. Padres lead. Padres end up with a 5-2 lead going into the fifth inning. David Wright embracing the moment. Of, his new, of the new stadium, the crowd that's there, wanting some excitement, hits a three-run home run to left field to tie the game. Mets, of course, end up losing, but Wright comes up with a clutch hit. Hits a two-run home run in 2008 off of Padres reliever Heath Bell, the former Met. Walk-off home run. Mets are down 2-1. His two-run homer gives the Mets a 3-2 win. And if that wasn't enough... 2006, Mets and Yankees in a tie game, Subway Series, Shea Stadium. Two outs, runner at second base, Paul LaDuca. And it's David Wright that drives the ball to center field over the head of Johnny Damon to help the Mets walk off to a win in an exciting game that featured uh, Randy Johnson starting against Jose Lima. I'm sorry, no, it was actually Jeremy Gonzalez who started that game for the Mets. But, you know, my point is that when you're talking about clutch players, not too many of them have, what was that, five, six moments that you could could bring up. And I understand he's been there for a while. You're not talking about three, four, five in a season. And ideally, some players are actually that clutch that they do that. But to say that David Wright is not a clutch player is not true. 
Once again, you, you agree, disagree, tweet me at John underscore Pielli. I will reply to every tweet. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And we're going to kind of get into the historical aspect of uh, Major League Baseball. Within this past week, uh, you find out that uh, Joe Estroth, who was a catcher for the 1954 Philadelphia Athletics, passes away at the age of 90. And the 1954 Philadelphia Athletics were, of course, the last version of the Athletics from Philadelphia because the next year in 1955, they moved to Kansas City. And later on in the late 60s would move to Oakland, which is what they're known today. And I, was, I wanted to get into a little bit of history because you look at what happened with the Philadelphia Athletics. You know they haven't been around since 1954. And my question was going to be, how many players are still alive after the, the, the passing of Joe Astroff? And he, was, of course, was a catcher on that team. And really going through it, I found that a lot of the players, a lot of the pitchers that made small appearances on that team were still alive. And let's understand that, you know, how, how old are you going to be in 1954? If you're in your early 20s, then you got a good chance. But, there were, but you know, in, in their defense, there weren't a lot of players on that team that were in their late 30s. So I went through it, and really out of the first 12 players that I checked just to see, you know, if they were living, half of them were still alive and half of them had passed on. And as you, as you move on, you realize that 11 – not, not counting Astroth, who, of course, passed away this past week. Rest in peace. 11 of the 38 players that played on that Philadelphia Athletics team are still alive. Hal Rather, a pitcher, is 80. Carl Sheeb is 86. Bobby Shantz is 87. Bill Oster is 80. Ozzie Van Brabant is 86. Art Dittmar is 84. Johnny Gray is 85. Jim Robertson is 85, Bill Renna is 88, Bill Wilson is 84, and Joe Demestri, the shortstop, is 84. So, obviously, to you got to be in your 80s, really, to still be living from that team from 1954. Obviously, what's significant about 1954, that was the last time the New York Giants, or any, any type of Giants, for that matter, San Francisco, New York, won the World Series until 2010. And, of course, a couple of years later, the Giants and the Dodgers would join, uh, you know, teams like the Philadelphia Athletics, the St. Louis Browns, and the Boston Braves as kind of moving either west or moving, you know, in a new geographical realignment that hadn't really been involved in baseball in a long time. You know, you looked at what, what, it, what had happened. Really, teams didn't move back then. Once the teams kind of set up themselves up in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, really around like 1915, 1917, 1918, they, they kept it. They kept things the way they were for a long time. And, of course, the geographical changes would lead to more expansion and that obviously leads to where we are today. But things didn't start until 1953. When the Boston Braves end up moving to Milwaukee. And of course, those were the National League Boston team that ends up moving after so many years in, the, you know, in Boston to Milwaukee. And of course, they eventually go through and they end up becoming the Atlanta Braves. And you know, that was in 1953. A year later, 
right after Bill Veck seized his, gave up his control of the St. Louis Browns, the new owner decides that he wants to move the team to Baltimore, something that Beck, that Veck wanted to do a couple years before. But because all the other owners conspired against him and hated the guy, it never happened. But the St. Louis Browns, the other team in St. Louis, would move to Baltimore and become the Orioles of the American League in 1954. And that was just a year after the National League Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee. And then you get the Browns, of course, moving from St. Louis to Baltimore in 1954. Like we just talked about, Philadelphia Athletics, last year was 1954. They move in 1955 to Kansas City. And, of course, Charlie Finley moves them to Oakland. Interesting things about this, of course, you know, if you're a baseball fan, the Milwaukee Braves end up moving to Atlanta. Milwaukee gets their own team. Uh, they take over that Seattle Pilots team of 1969, and since 1970, the Milwaukee Brave—sorry, the Milwaukee Brewers ha- have been a team, uh, an American League team until 1998, and then since 1998, they've been a National League team. St. Louis, Boston, Philadelphia never got themselves a second team. Kansas City ends up taking over the athletics because of Charlie Finley. He moves them to Oakland. They go out to the West Coast. They get themselves an expansion team in Kansas City where they've been known ever since. And, and of course, you talk about what becomes so instrumental in baseball, the real big moment in baseball history, was when you take two of your three New York franchises. And let's be honest, Major League Baseball – up and up through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, was so northeast central, if that makes sense to you, so generalized on what happened really in the northeast, that this was considered a huge, huge blow to Major League Baseball. When the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants decide to move out to the West Coast. And that happens, of course, after the 1957 season into the 1958 season. And you went, you know, you talked about from two Boston teams to one, from two St. Louis teams to one, from two Philadelphia teams to one, then from three New York teams to one. And if you're looking at it from an objective point of view, you say, wow, Major League Baseball is able to expand itself throughout all these different regions and do it in an interesting way that there's there's all these geographical regions that get to see baseball, people get to go to games, and it's not so northeast-centric as it was before. But what about the, the, the cities that had two teams? And, and, and you hear all the time about New York fans, the older Brooklyn Dodger, New York Giant fans that I get to speak with, talk about how baseball had had just changed all of a sudden on them a team that that they grew up rooting for that their parents had rooted for that they their parents had taken them to games are all of a sudden gone what do you do in that situation i mean what can you do do you 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 follow the team to the the west coast i mean as a tennessee titans football fan i could kind of relate because I was a Houston Oilers fan. I wasn't a Houston Oilers fan because of the region. I didn't grow up in Houston. That's just a football team I chose to root for. So I would naturally follow them to Tennessee or follow them to Jamaica or follow them to London, England if they moved there. And I'm obviously not talking literally. As a fan, I would follow the team wherever they are. But let's say you're, you're, you're a New Yorker. 
and all you've done your whole life is follow the New York Giants or the Brooklyn Dodgers, and all of a sudden they up and go to the West Coast, are you going to relocate? Probably not. It doesn't seem logical. But what you can do is still follow the team. And he saw a lot of New York fans all of a sudden becoming Los Angeles Dodger fans and New York Giant fans. And you, see, you still see it going on to today where, where you, you, know, you go to a Mets-Dodger game at Citi Field and there's a handful of Dodger fans because they're second and third generation Brooklyn Dodger fans. Not as much with the New York Giants and the San Francisco Giants. I've noticed, and obviously Willie Mays was a you know phenomenal player, and there's there's fans that are going to follow Willie Mays no matter where he goes, and he was so instrumental in New York not only baseball history but sports history. But you don't see as many Giant fans in New York anymore. But if you're going to compare it to other regional teams that are coming in. You know, let's say it's the Florida Marlins or Miami Marlins or the Washington Nationals or the Pittsburgh Pirates. You're not going to see as many fans in that stadium. You'll see some, but you're going to see a lot more Dodger fans, a lot more Giant fans because they're second and third generation fans from, from Brooklyn and New York. Looking at some of these other regions, you know, it's worth asking what happened to the fans of the Boston Braves and the Philadelphia Athletics and the St. Louis Browns. And let's be honest, the Braves were not the Red Sox, unfortunately. The Red Sox were known as that historical team, the team that, believe it or not, was actually known as a winner back back in the 50s. Of course, you know, they didn't enjoy any success or any World Series championships under Ted Williams, but they were known for winning in 1903 and 1912 and 1915, 16, and 18. So when you compared it to the Boston Braves, they had just won one, one title in 1914. So the, the number one team was the Boston Red Sox. The Boston Braves were the second fiddle in town. Philadelphia Athletics were the exact opposite. They were known as the winning team. The Philadelphia Phillies were kind of a lovable loser bunch. You know, you got, of course, the Wiz Kids of 1950, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But, the, you know, the, the uh, Philadelphia Athletics had gone out there and they'd won some World Series championships. 1910, 1911, 1913, 1929, and 1930. And we're, we're in other pennants, too. So they were the number one team. So just the just the, the the amazing thought of the number one team in town leaving was kind of amazing, and the fact that it wasn't the Phillies, it was the Athletics that ended up moving, which obviously endeared the Philadelphia faithful to, towards the Philadelphia Phillies. And if you look really since 1976, they've actually had a reasonable amount of success. They've had a lot more good years than bad years since then. So the Philadelphia Phillies and their fan base kind of kind of embraced the whole thing. They embraced the Philadelphia Phillies, their history, the organization, after the Athletics left for Kansas City in 1955 or for 1955 season. The other one's the more interesting one because you look at the St. Louis Browns and you know, if you look at really the history of a franchise, 
there weren't too many teams that were historically as bad as the St. Louis Browns. And yes, they had their one uh, one American League pennant that they won in 1944 when they lost to crosstown rival Cardinals in the World Series. But this was an organization that was historically so bad that, let's be honest, probably should have moved maybe five, maybe even ten years before. And, of course, just ten years before 1954 was their, their one World Series championship. And this is a team that over time became just kind of a, a place where veterans would kind of go to just to, to kind of fade away. And the, the field, the, they, they never seemed to really go out after anything. And, of course, they end up making the move to Baltimore. They go, they become the Orioles in 1954. And end up having some success. Not in the 50s, but kind of in the 60s. As the 60s come on, the Baltimore Orioles start to develop some young pitching. Uh, they bring in a guy named Frank Robinson, who kind of really uh, turns some things around. There's the Boog Powells, the Brooks Robinsons of the world, uh, Jim Palmer. All, all the great pitching that they ended up having there. Earl Weaver comes there and, you know, really kind of helps that organization turn itself around. And it wasn't too long after the Orioles have some success that all of a sudden everybody in Major League Baseball forgets that the St. Louis Browns even existed. I mean, the St. Louis Browns, let's be honest, were one of the most forgotten uh, parts of a franchise in the history of Major League Baseball. I mean, Atlanta Braves fans remember that they were the Boston Braves and they were the Milwaukee Braves. Um, Oakland Athletics fans remember that they were they, they played in Kansas City and Philadelphia. And you're looking at maybe a generation of Baltimore Orioles fans that don't really remember, that, that maybe think that the Baltimore Orioles were, were an expansion team in 1954. And they weren't. It's just the St. Louis Browns were just so bad that it's just kind of hard to, uh, to to relate to. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the first, of the second hour. I'll be back with a lot more after this. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And, you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454, and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Join us Fridays at 9 p.m. for Italian Hour. I'm Karen Siesca-Zeltman, and I'm always joined by Nicolette Trappiano. And sometimes by Anthony Campeggio. Hey, somebody's got to work. 
Okay, valid point. But we have fun, and we talk about lots of things, like sports, entertainment, pop culture, pretty much anything that's going on. And sometimes we drink a little bit. Uh, sometimes. Or a lot. All right. Join us again Fridays at 9 p.m. Italian hour. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. This is the Past Ball Show on the MTR Radio Network. John Pielli finishing up the second hour here. I uh, hope you guys enjoy the program. Once again, reminding you, just tweet at me at John underscore Pielli, last name P-I-E-L-L-I, and I will respond to every tweet during the broadcast of the past ball show. Uh, trying to just keep the whole interactive thing going on, reminding you to check me check me out every Thursday. I'll be with Chris Beasy Alley, sometimes in the uh, Princeton-Lawrenceville area at the Hooters, and sometimes in the studio here at the Connecticut School Broadcasting in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Uh, like I said, I'm also going to launch, which will be a, hopefully a weekly show that I'll broadcast from my house, which will be about fantasy baseball, giving you guys all like some perspective. You want to know uh, what the hot players are, what they, wh- wh- who you should add, who you should drop, and you know, definitely come here for that because I got I got plenty of info. But Moving forward, and it was good to get into a little bit about really the 1950s, which the 1950s kind of changed baseball geographically. And we talked about the, the 40s being uh, ending the segregation and being kind of a uh, it, kind of a, a, an implanting in your head that the New York Yankees are the dominant team in baseball, that uh, really the best team in the National League and in National League history to that point was the St. Louis Cardinals. And that's really what the 40s kind of kind of brought you out to. The 50s, you see the Dodgers emerging and, of course, uh, their rivalry with the Yankees in a World Series. But the big thing about the 1950s was the fact that so many teams end up changing locations the geography of major league baseball changes and that's something that you know you don't you you know you realize well wow 1953 the braves moved from boston to milwaukee 1954 the browns moved from st louis to baltimore 1955 the athletics moved from philadelphia to kansas city and of course 1958 the dodgers and the giants moved from new york to los angeles and san francisco so that, that's, that's the summary of the 1950s for you. You want to say 1940s was uh, Yankees, Cardinals, and uh, integration? 1950s was uh, opening up the geography of Major League Baseball. Staying around that time, pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies comes up in 1948, makes 20 starts, 7-9, 3-19 ERA couple of years later wins 20 games for the first time in his major league career and that of course is robin roberts robin roberts uh was it three years ago a couple days ago passed away uh to my died may 6 2010 at age 83 the hall of fame pitcher um was probably was you know probably up there with steve carlton as far as the best pitcher to ever put on a philadelphia philly uniform and roberts really what he did up in his career in Philadelphia, which, of course, make it a connection to what I said before, 1955, there's no more Philadelphia team in the American League. 
So the attention of Philadelphia kind of gets on Robin Roberts. And he had a great career with the Philadelphia Phillies. And in my opinion, what I, what I posted in my article, Bases Empty blog, JohnPLE.com, the whole thing, was that he was a Hall of Famer after the 1961 season. After he went... 1-10 with the Philadelphia Phillies in 18 starts, 26 appearances, 585 ERA, just 54 strikeouts and 117 innings pitched. Because at that point, he was 234 and 199 in 14 years. 346 ERA, 540 winning percentage, 472 starts, 272 complete games, 35 shutouts. He's a Hall of Famer. And people say, well, you know what? He needed to get closer to 300 to 286 wins. We're kind of the icing on the cake. And I don't agree. Whether he got the 300 or not, and obviously if you get that close, you're going to try to go out there and do it. And Robert Roberts did that in 1967 with his comeback. He played. He actually played in the minor leagues for the, uh, the, the Philadelphia's Reading affiliate and made a comeback. Actually put out some very, very good numbers, which were kind of impressive. But ends up coming in, running into some arm trouble and ends up being done, retires at that point. But one thing about Robin Roberts, and I, I don't have any dispute about it. I thought about it. I really did. I was like, you know, would, would a guy who pitched for 14 years make the Hall of Fame? And the first thing that comes to your mind is you're like, well, you know, didn't Sandy Koufax only pitch like eight or nine full seasons? And I'm not going to say that Robin Roberts was as dominant as Sandy Koufax because Sandy Koufax was more of a strikeout pitcher. He was that, that phenom that was going to blow you away. And the unfortunate thing was that his arm just couldn't hold up after striking out all those batters and having that dominance for about seven straight seasons, his arm essentially fell off. But Robin Roberts knew how to get hitters out. Robin Roberts took advantage uh, of hitters that he knew were looking to hit fly balls. He'd have them hit fly balls in the wrong spot. Of course, up until Jamie Moyer, uh, you know, the, the most recent Jamie Moyer, he had, Robin Roberts had given up the most home runs in the history of Major League Baseball. But he was also the master of knowing when to give one up. You know, if your team's up 3-1, to one, he went after you. And if you hit a solo home run, so be it. He's trying to get outs. And you also notice this was one of the guys that did not walk too many batters. If you look at his career from 52 to 54, and in 1956, he led the league in strikeout, per, strikeout ratio to walks. Least amount of walks per nine innings. He's not going to walk you. He's going to go after you. And obviously, as his career went on and his fastball kind of diminished a little bit, you saw a little bit of a decline in 56 and 57. And even in 58 and 59, he was a little more hittable. But at the same time, let's remember that the Philadelphia Phillies teams that he was a part of were not any good. When he came up in 1950, now the 1950 Phillies, the Wiz kids, you got Richie Ashburn, you got Del Ennis, you got Kurt Simmons, uh, uh, Jim, Jim Costanti. You, you, got, you got guys that, that were all part of a core there that you thought this team was going to go around and be successful for a little while longer. You know why? Because the, because the team hadn't been to, to a World Series since 1915. And you're like, you know what? The law of averages is going to make this Philadelphia Phillies team good and competitive. And as you get into the mid-50s, you're like, all right, well, you know, now's the time because the athletics aren't even here anymore. 
But Robin Roberts, I'll tell you, through the better part of the 50s, the entire decade of the 50s, was a dominant pitcher, one of the best pitchers in all of baseball, and got himself a, a Hall of Fame, had himself a Hall of Fame career in that decade. And, and it's funny, you talk about Koufax and how he you know, faded because of injuries but was still a Hall of Fame pitcher. Uh, the best comparison that I could come up with too with Robin Roberts is Catfish Hunter. And Catfish Hunter, of course, you know, ends up dying, you know, you know, an untimely death and ends up having to retire a little early because of problems, you know, neurological problems that were developed. I believe it was attributed to ALS, which he ends up dying from. But he had the same type of dominance in the 1970s. Started with the athletics. Of course, the, uh, the, the athletics trade him to the New York Yankees. And he continues his success there, helping him win a couple World Series championships. But looking at Catfish Hunter, here's a guy that only pitched a total of 15 years. And that being said, that counts his 65 season and 66 season in Kansas City, where he was not much of a factory. He went 8-8 eight and eight and 9-11 and 11 in those two seasons. His last three seasons with the Yankees, 77, 9 and 9 and 22 starts, 12 and 6 and 20 starts, 2 and 9 and 19 starts. So you're talking about five of those 15 years that are kind of irrelevant. Not irrelevant because he just wasn't good, but irrelevant because he didn't pitch enough to be an impactful pitcher on the team's pitching staff. So you look at 67 with the Athletics, 13 and 17, 281. Kind of a breakout season. Next year, 13 and 13, 335. 12 and 15, 335. And then as soon as 1970 comes, at age 24, Catfish Hunter really starts to become one of the best pitchers in baseball. 18 and 14, 381. 71. 21 and 11, 296. 72. 21 and 7, 204 ERA. 21 and 5, 334 and 73. 74, 25 and 12, 249. Uh, one of the best pitchers in baseball at that time. Then, of course, he gets out of, he finds the loophole in his contract, becomes a free agent, signs with the Yankees, and goes 23 and 14 with a 258 ERA in 1975 with 30 complete games. And he was that damn good. A whip of 1.009. Another guy that didn't walk a lot of batters. Another similarity to Robin Roberts. And, of course, you know, he, he ends up getting sick. 1976, the Yankees get to the World Series. He goes 17 and 15, 353 ERA. And in the last three seasons that I told you about, unfortunately, uh, just were, were, were attributed to the fact that Catfish Hunter could not get to the mound that often. But he finishes his career 224 and 166, 326 ERA. Retires in 1979 and in 1987 is in the Hall of Fame. And I'm not going to dispute it because he was that dominant from, from the years from 1970 to 1976. Don't, you can't name another pitcher in either league that was as dominant over that time. Yes, Jim Palmer was good. But Catfish Hunter was better at that time. And that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. And you make the same comparison to a Robin Roberts. And I understand Robin Roberts pitched longer. Robin Roberts ends up being traded to the Yankees in 1961, but never pitches a game for them. Ends up going to the Baltimore Orioles, where he has a couple decent seasons. He wins 10 games, 14, 13, and then uh, 10 and 9 combined in 1965 with the Astros and the Orioles. 
So he adds, was it another 23, 37, 47 wins to his career? And of course, 1966, he wins five more games. So he wins another 42 games after he leaves the Philadelphia Phillies. He didn't need to do that. And let's be honest, it's not that he wasn't dominant. His 346 ERA in, in Philadelphia was the highest ERA, higher ERA than he had in either Baltimore, which was 309, and Houston, 277. So, so he, he maintained himself as being a very good pitcher over that time. I mean, you look at what he did in 1965 after he was acquired by the Houston Astros from the Baltimore Orioles. He went 5-2 and two with a 189 ERA. He became kind of a, a, a guy that fans wanted to go see. The Houston Astros, the Astrodome, the whole thing. Nobody wanted to go out there because that team was so lousy. It was essentially an expansion team. But Robin Roberts came out there, dominated at the end of that season, and had you know, you know, really looked good, got hitters out, made it really tough to go in there and beat him in the Astrodome. <clears throat> and, of course, he finishes his career off with the Chicago Cubs, uh, for the end of the 1966 season. And then, of course, wants to make the comeback in 67 with the Phillies. Phillies bring him back. He ends up spending all that time in the minor leagues. In my opinion, and I'm going to throw this out there, why wasn't Robin Roberts given a shot in the major leagues? I mean, he made 11 starts that year in the minors before his arm kind of gave. But, I mean, was he pitching that bad? He pitched to a 2-3 two, a two, ERA in, in Redding in 1967. And you're going to tell me that the 1967 Philadelphia Phillies had had better pitchers on the major league level? I don't agree with it at all. And you have a guy like that who's coming back to your organization and, and a staple, the best pit, you know, the best pitcher that you have ever had to that point. And yes, you know, the 1967 Phillies had guys like Jim Bunning, Larry Jackson, Rick Wise, Chris Short. But you tell me that you couldn't have snuck a Robin Roberts in there as a fifth starter? I mean, Dick Ellsworth could have pitched a couple more games out of the pen. I mean, really outside of Bunning and Jackson and, and, and Chris Short, I mean, you know, they could have fit Robin Roberts in there. And I think just as a, as, as a respect to him, if they were going to bring him back, they should have gone all the way and put him in that rotation. And that rotation would have been good, especially if Roberts was pitching as well as he was in the minors that season before his arm gave. And maybe this team competes a little bit more than it ends up doing. Gene Mock in 1967 ends up going 82-80. and 80. Maybe maybe Roberts could give them another three four wins, where they where they could get a little closer. But listen, Robin Roberts was absolutely a Hall of Fame pitcher. He didn't need to pitch a game after 1961 when his Philadelphia career was over. And you know what? He did a very good job. Give him credit. But continuing to go here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. It's John Pielli, of course. <clears throat> Carlos Gomez. And, of course, us Mets fans remember Carlos Gomez being a prospect up in the 2007 season, of course, was the centerpiece of the trade in, in before the 2008 season that got the Mets Johan Santana. Johan Santana comes to the Mets, has a good 2008 season, and uh, listen, I'm not going to retell the story of Johan Santana, but Carlos Gomez is off to a phenomenal start 
for the Milwaukee Brewers this season. And you really look at a guy over the last couple seasons, you, you weren't really sure what you were going to get out of him. He was kind of a platoon player. I don't think the Brewers were sold on giving him the job in center field every day. He showed a little bit of uh, kind of vulnerability against right-hand pitching sometimes. But he has become a borderline star this year. He has been that good. I mean, a start that he is off to, I don't know if he can maintain it, but let's be honest, if you look at what happened last season, it's kind of a sign that he's starting to put it together. And you see a lot of players that are at that age of 26, 27, that have been up in the majors for the last four or five years, finally put it together and becoming that dominant of a player. And I really do think Carlos Gomez can be a guy that could go out there and hit 25 home runs, uh, steal 30 bases, hit probably about 310 or 320, and OPS about 900. And you think that's crazy? I mean, look at these OPS in right now, 1.059. OPS plus of 179. Obviously, he's not going to maintain it at that level, but there's a guy that goes out there. He scores his runs, seven doubles, two triples, six homers, 12 RBIs, to go with his 368 batting average, which leads the National League. And, of course, that allowed me to kind of get into something I always like to do. I like to have a couple players that I don't really particularly care for in Major League Baseball and take my shots at them. Because there was a guy, and, of course, you all remember him, the 2011 Milwaukee Brewers making a postseason, the cocky son of a gun himself, Niger Morgan. And you wonder what happened to him. Morgan came up. In the 2000, you know, 2010 season, I'm sorry, in the 2000, what was it, 2011 season, after he wore himself out of town with the Washington Nationals, and he had a good season. He did. He was a guy that was kind of coming into his own, a guy that, you know, was misunderstood, Oh, a flamboyant type of guy that's going to go out there and just kind of be emotional. He's going to get the crowd into things. He's going to inspire his teammates. And he backed it up that season. He, he, had, he had a very, very good 2011 season. He had 304, four homers, 37 RBIs. Was a guy that was kind of a pest on the bases. Not necessarily a base stealer, but a guy that could take the extra base. Played a good defensive center field. Kind of came into his own. And you look at, you know, a guy that was kind of taken out of Pittsburgh, traded for Lasting's Millage, of all people. Wore out his welcome in Washington. Of course, he ran into a catcher for no reason with the Marlins and gets hit by a pitch the next game and ends up going to try to steal a base on you. So next time he comes up, he gets hit again, and he goes and charges the mound. What an idiot. But he goes out there in 2011. He hits 304. He does a very good job for the Brewers. They make the playoffs. Uh, of course, he ends up starting his own controversy when he picks a fight with Chris Carpenter and the St. Louis Cardinals and says, you guys aren't going to make the playoffs. And what ends up happening? The Brewers play the Cardinals in the NLCS. And guess what? The Cardinals beat the Brewers in six games. Oh, wow. What a surprise. And, you know, Niger Morgan comes back in 2012. And really what led to the emergence of Carlos Gomez, in my opinion, was Niger Morgan's struggle. And he had just 239. He, he kind of had his issues against right-hand pitching. So the Brewers went out there, and they could trust Gomez a little more often against both righties and lefties. Remember, Norichika Aoki was a guy that Doug Melvin brought in from Japan with the hopes 
of making him an everyday center fielder because that's what he came from. He was an everyday center fielder. He ends up taking over in right when Corey Hart moves to the first base after Matt Gamble's out for the season. So that opens up center field for Carlos Gomez. And Carlos Gomez, after hitting 225 in 2011, hits 260 last year, 19 home runs, 51 RBIs, 37 stolen bases. And tell me, over the course of a full season, that he can't do 30-30. And we talked about it before. We talked about it in 2007 when he was 21 years old, coming up with the Mets. He was a guy who had a lot of raw talent. He was going to grow. He was going to get a little bigger, have a little more power. And, of course, it didn't really show in his Minnesota days. He was traded for J.J. Hardy straight up. Hardy's a good player in himself. Gomez is a very good player in his own right. But Gomez is still on Milwaukee while the Twins traded Hardy to the Baltimore Orioles. But I, I do think that Carlos Gomez is a guy that could really get the, you know, he could really become that next level player. And talk about, you know, the fantasy baseball uh, uh, podcast I'm going to be doing. You know, that's something you might want to think about. I doubt Carlos Gomez is available in anybody's league right now. But moving forward, John Pielli, Passball Show and TR Radio Network. We're going to take our last break of the day. We'll be back for another six minutes or so. We'll finish it up after. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of Internet Radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Um, a lot of great things that we got into. The history of baseball. We talked about Robin Roberts. We talked about... Uh, the 1954 Philadelphia Athletics. We talked about, you know, Mets, Yankees, Phillies. We touched the whole thing. I'm going to get into another thing here. Baseball movies. And, uh, you know, I, for some reason, and, and I think of random things at random times. The other day I was thinking about that scene in Mr. Baseball where, uh, where Tom, Tom Selleck gets hit by the pitch for the second time. And he goes, he go, he, he's talking to the pitcher. He says, say you're sorry, say you're sorry. And that was kind of one of the turning points of that whole movie when, you know, next thing, next thing you know, the, the guy isn't saying he's sorry. And not, not only is his whole team out there fighting the other team, but they're throwing crazy punches and roundhouse kicks and going nuts on each other in, in defense uh, of Tom Selleck's character. And, and, and it just made me think, you know, what are some of the better baseball movies? Not only that, but what kind of baseball movie makes it great? Is it funny? Do you want to go the comedy level to like a uh, let's say a major league, or uh, Naked Gun? The first the first Naked Gun obviously has a very big baseball scene in that movie. Um, is it historical? 
you know, you look at like a 42, you look at a 61, um, even a, a, a documentary like a, uh, like a Cobb or a, uh, a League of Their Own. How, how much baseball does it really have to have? How real does it have to be? The Sandlot, movies like that. You know, Field of Dreams. What 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 kind of movie? What 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 kind of movie makes it a good baseball movie? What about it? I mean, I hope you understand what I'm saying. What what it what what is it? What is what brings it to the table to make it a good baseball movie? And, and you know, personally, I've always been a comedy fan. I love movies like Major League, and you know, the first Naked Gun. I could replay the Enrico Palazzo scene, or you know, we could replay uh, the scene where they get in a rundown where Frank Drebin's the umpire. I mean, I mean, that stuff cracks me up because you just know, as a baseball fan, it's just unreal. There's no way that's going to happen. Like you're talking about a real game going on, and they're playing highlights of a guy going go, going back to uh, catch a fly ball, and, and he jumps up, and the ball hits him in the head, and his head falls off. I mean, maybe to me, that's funny. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. But once again, tweet me at John underscore PLE. Let me know what you think. Like I said, I'll respond to every tweet from here forward that, that I get while this show's on the air. John Pielli, Passball Show, and TR Radio Network. And just wanted to let you know, whatever your favorite baseball movie and why, you could tweet that to me. In addition, um, do you think David Wright's a clutch player? I think he's clutch enough. I don't think that, that the Mets have had enough opportunities in the postseason uh, with the game on the line. I don't think he has cost them seasons. Uh, I think I think the jury's still out as far as whether he's going to be just a guy uh, you know that, that you could absolutely count on in every big spot, but I still trust him. And the New York Yankees. Feel free to let, let me know. What do you think about the New York Yankees this year? Do you think that they could play another couple months at around 500 until their players get back? Or is this is something that could spiral into the 2009 New York Mets? Those are all those are all things to think about. I mean, I mean, what, you know, are things going to stay as good for the New York Yankees? Is Lyle Overbay going to perform at his level? Is Travis Hafner going to be as good as he has been? I mean, to me, I don't really have an answer. I think time will tell. But listen, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Great job. I want to thank Fred Clare. Did a phenomenal job. And if you get a chance, really, um, you, you know, and you, and you, maybe you missed the first part of the show, uh, phenomenal interview with Fred Clare today. And Fred Clare, of course, the longtime general manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, over 30 years in the Dodgers organization. We hit a, a, a lot of things from Al Campanis to um, being in public relations in the late, in, 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 you know, in the 70s to uh, Fox buying the Dodgers at his departure in 1998. A uh, lot of great stuff we went over in that interview. So if, if you get a chance, maybe, maybe you missed it here, check out johnpielli.com, uh, my, uh, my John Pielli Passball Show interviews page. I'll have it up there within a, you know, by the time this show plays live. So uh, as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Of course, feel free to catch me on Thursdays where I'll be going uh, live, you know, probably from the Hooters over in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, the MTR Evening Drive. Uh, with Chris Spezialli, and stay tuned. I'll let you guys know when we're going to be doing the fantasy baseball show uh, where you get all your fantasy advice from. So listen, thanks once again to Fred Clare. Thanks for everybody that took the time to listen today, and thanks for everybody who has supported the passball show as we continue to rock uh, in the year 2013. Take care, guys.